way they think. The Millionaire Mountain logo on the cover of this book is meant to symbolize the power of thinking big. It comes from a discussion of climbing Mount Everest I sometimes use to illustrate the path of high achievement, going after big, audacious goals. People who set out to test the slopes of Mount Everest don't do so on a whim. It's a big goal, and it requires big thinking. They study, plan, and think strategically. Months, even years of preparation are involved because there's a lot at stake. One major misstep can result in falling short of the summit or even in disaster. There's just as much at stake in your financial life, and becoming financially wealthy represents an Everest of sorts in the world of money. The journey is big and can be long, sometimes trying. Often it's extremely difficult, but it is always worthwhile, always. The best way to prepare for a climb to the highest altitude is first to acquire the right mindset and attitude. It's even been said that your attitude determines your altitude. That's why a substantial section of this book is dedicated to the way you think. It's about building sound financial thinking as a foundation for building solid financial wealth, enriching your mind and enriching your life. Consider this chapter, Think a Million, as your financial base camp on the path to climbing the Millionaire Mountain. It's a place where even the most competent and confident climbers must pause and listen to the wisdom of those who have reached the summit before them. It's time to examine the seven ways millionaire real estate investors think. Number one, think powered by a big why. In Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill wrote, What a different story men would have to tell if only they would adopt a definite purpose and stand by that purpose until it had time to become an all-consuming obsession. Motivation matters. Napoleon Hill believed it. And so do I. In fact, this is something I learned a long time ago, and ever since I've made it my practice to study the lives of successful people, to discover their motivation to achieve. I clip news articles, read biographies, and watch documentaries on their lives. What I try to decipher from their individual stories is a common pattern for achievement. What did these people do differently? Were they smarter or better educated? Did they come from high-achieving families? Were they exceptionally gifted or hardworking? The primary characteristic I've found in the lives of high achievers is that they had a strong drive to succeed. They had a compelling personal reason to achieve. It's what I call a big why. One of the many articles I clipped was from a management study in which the authors made an interesting discovery. When tested against such factors as intelligence, ability, and salary, it's the level of motivation that proves to be a more significant element in predicting career success. The authors went on to state that while the level of motivation was strongly correlated to individual success, it didn't matter where the motivation came from. In general, I've found this to be true as long as the motivation is powerful and lasting. The millionaire real estate investors we spoke to while researching this book shared with us the fact that their motivation arose from a desire to be free from their jobs, have more choices in their lives, achieve self-actualization, and gain the security that comes with abundance. They shared a similar drive to reach for their potential, asking questions like, how much am I capable of? And what's possible for me? 
High achievers, the millionaire real estate investors, are powered by a big why. Striving to be your very best will have you following in their footsteps on the path to big success. A big why can redefine your life in ways you might not have imagined. But to qualify as a big why, your motivation should move you from thinking in terms of electives to acting in terms of imperatives. What I mean is, you stop thinking of success as something you want to achieve and start feeling that it's something you need to, in fact, have to achieve. Life is very different when you move from want-tos to have-tos. And a truly significant big why causes you to make that transition. Are you plugged into your big why? Are you tapping into the energy it can bring to your life? Chances are you're listening to this book for a reason. You probably have a strong motivation for seeking financial wealth. I encourage you to take a moment to reflect on the things in your life that motivate you the most. Try to think beyond material goals. You may be working hard to pay off college loans or credit card debt or maybe get a new family car. But as big as those things seem now, they are really short-term sources of motivation. Any benefits you receive from a focus on them today are unlikely to outlive your achieving them tomorrow. Maybe your greater motivation is financial freedom. Take a moment now and write down your thoughts. What are the big reasons that drive the choices you make? When you're finished, look for a natural hierarchy. Do some things motivate you more than others do? Is there a higher motivation beyond what you've written down? Ask yourself, what would that choice do for me? What would it mean to me to have that or do that? What would it allow me to become? Do your best to rank all these things in terms of their importance to you. Hopefully, at the top, there's something along the lines of, I want to be as financially wealthy as I can be. Or, I want the largest life possible for me. Big whys, as they relate to achieving your highest potential, are, in my experience, the most powerful. Reaching one's personal financial potential is a limitless pursuit. After all, there's no cap on that potential. This is important because the power and reach of your motivation often dictates the level of your success. Having no motivation will lead you nowhere. A small source of motivation will bring you small success. Big success, in contrast, requires much, much more. It requires a big why. An evergreen, ever-growing big why. In the end, you shouldn't be too judgmental about your honest answers. Your highest and best calling is your highest and best calling. It's not comparative. It's not competitive. The goal of this exercise is simply to look for and articulate the factors that drive you to take meaningful and persistent action. Once they're put on paper and written in your heart, they will become a powerful guiding force. The natural next step is to ask yourself, do my professional goals line up with that vision? What's the best way to finance my big why? Are my relationships in line with these goals? What you'll discover is that a big why brings clear answers to these probing questions and helps you see how the choices you're making help or hinder you on your quest. Possibly the most tangible gift of a big why is that it requires and enables you to prioritize your needs. 
as well as the choices and actions that will fulfill them. Simply put, when you say yes to one thing, you're clearly saying no to anything that works against it. If your big why is to seek the limitless opportunities that come with financial wealth, you soon may realize that some of your current spending decisions are working against your long-term financial aspirations. Keeping your focus on the big prize is a great way to avoid missteps or distractions. It's like the Olympic athlete who tapes a picture of a previous gold medal winner to her bathroom mirror. It reminds her of why she is rising before dawn to train for hours while her friends are still in bed. All great achievements are the result of sustained focus over time, all of them. A big why brings incredible power and enormous stamina to your financial focus. And big financial success requires that. Number two, think big goals, big models, and big habits. Life is too big to think small. If you want to lead a big life, your thinking has to lead the way. I can't tell you how many times in the course of our research we heard the refrain, I wish I had started sooner, bought more, and sold less. Even our millionaire real estate investors realized that as big as their thinking had been, they could have thought even bigger. They understood that the size of their financial lives had been determined by the size of their thinking. I believe in thinking big, but I also know that's not enough. Without big goals, big models, and big habits, big thinking may be wishful thinking. And by itself, wishful thinking isn't that useful. There's only a small difference between living a great life in your head and living a great life in reality. But that small difference makes all the difference. People who lead great lives allow their big thinking to direct them to action. Countless big thinkers have lived before us. Trails have been blazed and paths cleared. Twigs have been broken and breadcrumbs dropped. Clues have been left and X marks the spot. The big models and big habits they discovered on the path to their big goals have been left for us to learn from not learning from their methods. Reinventing the wheel is a monumental waste of time. Life is too short to move slowly. It's been said that if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. Interestingly, the opposite is equally true. If you know where you're going, there is a best path for getting there. The gift of discovering your big why is knowing your ultimate destination and being driven to reach it. However, the challenge of a big why lies in finding the best path to get there. For the millionaire real estate investor, finding that path is about two things, establishing big goals and acquiring big models. Big goals force you to restate your big why in specific and measurable terms. And big models represent the proven systems and activities that will get you to those big goals. If your big why is to achieve financial independence, you'll have to take that abstract concept and quantify it. Then, faced with a specific financial goal related to your big why, the question becomes, how do I achieve that? The answer is found in proven big models. In the context of this book, I'm advocating that you adopt the big goals and big models of a millionaire real estate investor. There are some subtle but powerful lessons in Figure 18 on the bonus CD. 
if you follow the arrows that go through the different levels of achievement, it appears that various levels are just milestones on the way to models and habits of millionaires. Sadly, life doesn't work like that. The truth is that each level is more like a box created by thinking and habits that form an end rather than a means. And rather than being a stepping stone to the next level, the box you're in becomes a barrier to higher achievement. You will have hit a dead end before you realize it, and unwittingly so. That's the danger of limited thinking and the box your habits will create. Specifically, if you follow the models and actions that lead you to $5,000 in net worth, they are not likely to allow you to go beyond that goal to, say, $175,000. The things you would do to get to that higher level would be very different. By following the $5,000 model, you have created for yourself a low ceiling, or at least a box with a very tight lid. It's the difference between long-term and short-term thinking. While most people would say they want a great life, they rarely plan beyond the current year. As a result, they choose a financial model that fits only their short-term goals, and that financial short-sightedness can be devastating to their long-term dreams. Interestingly, those numbers aren't random. The 2001 survey of consumer finances by the Federal Reserve documented that people who rent have a net worth of less than $5,000, while the typical homeowner has a net worth of a little less than $175,000. That illustrates the stark difference between the financial models and habits of renters and those of people who own their own home. In contrast, following the truly big financial models that can take you to a million dollars in net worth will pull you through the lower levels. It's the power of future pull. It's the power that comes from following big models and developing big habits to implement them. You're so focused on doing things in a manner that will get you to your big goal that you are pulled right past the smaller ones. This is the real magic of big goals and big models. When you follow the big models of millionaire real estate investors, you'll find your day-to-day -day activities begin to mirror those of high achievers. Over time, those big models will cease being guidelines you follow and become the habits that power you through your day. Habits, as we all know, are hard to break, and so it's truly wise to build the best habits from the beginning. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote, The second half of a man's life is made up of nothing but the habits he has acquired during the first half. The models in this book are about acquiring big financial wealth-building habits for your life. There is no such thing as a neutral habit. Habits are either good or bad. They either lift you up or drag you down. In the financial world, the models you follow and the habits they form are either additive or subtractive. Good habits put money in your pocket. Bad ones take money out. But even good habits can be a handicap if they're small and box you into a certain level of accomplishment. Those who take the incremental approach and start with small habits will find that the real challenge lies not in adopting new goals and models, but rather in breaking their old habits and then forming bigger and better new ones. Think big goals and big models from the start. The big habits you'll have to create will serve you at every level of financial achievement along your journey. Not only will they guide you toward the most appropriate actions to achieve your goals, they tend to protect you from mistakes. Mistakes people with lesser goals, models, and habits make. 
Would you rather make a millionaire mistake or a rookie mistake? There's a big difference. And in real estate investing, a costly mistake in the beginning can knock you completely out of the game. Big goals, big models, and big habits do more than just direct you. They also protect you. In addition to guiding you to do the right things, they keep you from doing the wrong things. Millionaire real estate investors have big goals. They seek out big models to attain them. And over time, they enjoy the gift of big habits to drive them toward their financial destiny. When all this is powered by a big why, there's little that can hold them back. Number three, think money matters. We all have a fundamental choice in our financial lives. You can choose the path of earned income or the path of unearned income. In other words, you can work for money or money can work for you. On one path, you get paid only for what you do. On the other, you get paid no matter what you do. One path is well-worn. The other is largely undiscovered. Somehow the concept of building financial wealth, the path less traveled, has fallen through the cracks of our collective consciousness. As important as money is in our daily lives, and as powerful as the concept of financial wealth building is, most people have not taken their financial education seriously. Millionaire real estate investors, however, are different. For them, money matters. What is almost universally considered an elective is, for them, a prerequisite course for life. By choice, they're students of the financial wealth building game. At a certain point, these investors grasped that understanding money paid dividends in their lives, big dividends. As soon as they made that connection, the pursuit of the knowledge of money, its history, its rules, and its disciplines, became a primary focus for them. They sought mentors, read books, listened to tapes, and attended seminars. They set out to get a superb homeschool education in financial matters and received the equivalent of a master's degree in money. Wendy Patton, a millionaire real estate investor from Detroit, Michigan, got her start when her mom gave her a set of real estate investment tapes. Later, a $39 course on lease options formed the basis of the investment strategy she has successfully used for 15 years. Now she collects them. I bought every course I could find. I have at least $50,000 worth in my library. The goal of this book is to get you on the positive, life-changing path to passive income as quickly as possible. At the end of that path is a place called financial wealth. It's where you have enough money working for you that you no longer have to work for money. But that kind of passive income doesn't happen by accident. You first have to get educated, then make investing a priority in your life. That education begins with the money matrix. The money matrix. Most people are in the dark about money. They live from paycheck to paycheck in a twilight world with only the dim candle of conventional thinking to light the way. As a result, they have a kind of financial short-sightedness that prevents them from distinguishing between good and bad financial decisions. It's time to throw some light on the subject and illuminate the way wealthy people think about money. The most powerful model for understanding the use of money and the building of financial wealth is the money matrix. It tells the story of how the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It helps people identify whether they are investors or consumers, and whether their money works for them or they work for money. 
Think of the money matrix as two pyramids whose bases are touching. Picture one pyramid pointing upward, the other pointing downward. It's helpful if you refer to the money matrix chart on the bonus CD. It's figure 20. The two pyramids reflect the contrasting financial priorities of investors and consumers. The essential difference between the two is the importance they place on the four roles of money. The first role is capital, the money invested in anything expected to grow in value. The second role is cash flow, money generated from those investments. The third role of money is cash, money held in reserve for security of future investments. The fourth and last role of money is consumption, the money spent on anything not expected to grow in value. Investors understand that your first financial priority has a cascading effect on your financial life. In other words, what you do with your money in the beginning will dictate what you're able to do in the end. It's about your financial priorities, what you actually do when you receive money. While investors see money as an opportunity to invest, consumers see money as primarily an opportunity to spend. As a result, while investors are generating money from their investments, consumers are, at best, saving money for security. Later, while investors are setting aside more money for future investments, consumers are trying to wring some return out of their modest savings. Finally, while investors are free to spend all that's left, consumers are struggling to invest the little that is left. When you invest in capital first, an amazing thing happens. Slowly but surely, your money starts to work for you. Amazingly, your money is now making you even more money. And each year, as you invest more of your income in capital, the cash flow it creates grows in significance. Suddenly, you'll find you're well along the financial wealth-building path of passive income. The game millionaire real estate investors play is to see how much unearned income they can generate from their investments. In the end, it all comes down to a person's ability to prioritize investing over spending, to value capital more than consumption. Many of the millionaire real estate investors we interviewed reported making some short-term sacrifices for long-term gains while they were building a foundation for financial wealth. Not only did they invest a relatively large percentage of their earned income, they also overcame the impulse to squander any extra income generated from their investments. Instead, they reinvested the line share of their cash flow in additional capital to accelerate the financial wealth building process. And that was when their investing process took on a life of its own. It seemed that the more capital they owned, the more capital they could afford. Reinvesting your cash flow creates a financial wealth building machine that feeds itself and has the potential to grow exponentially over time. Consumers, in contrast, have it all backward. Consumers live for shadow wealth. We call it shadow wealth because when you live a life of consumption, it can give the appearance of wealth without any of the substance. It's what the authors of The Millionaire Next Door referred to as big hat, no cattle. In the context of this book, it's big house, no investments, or even worse, big car, no house. These are the individuals who may have high-paying jobs, but have failed to get their financial priorities in order. They see having money as an opportunity to spend first, spend second, and spend last. They get their values from the media, 
and spend their money accordingly. In short, they allow consumption to dominate their thinking. And with no capital to serve as a financial foundation, at the end of the day, they are a pink slip away from financial distress and maybe financial disaster. Living life as an investor means first living a life of less consumption than the media would have you believe you should. It requires listening to wisdom, not to the world. Although an emphasis on consumption hinders your ability to build financial wealth, consumption is not entirely a bad thing. After all, the goal of wealth building is to create a big enough foundation of capital and cash flow that your consumption needs are met without your having to work. Consumption has two distinct forms. On the one hand, you spend money on yourself to satisfy your needs and wants. On the other hand, you can spend money for the benefit of others. I'm talking about taking care of your loved ones and, of course, making contributions to charity, which in my mind is the highest and best use of money. Charity is a kind of capital investment for the soul that pays real dividends in your life and in the quality of all life. When you view your financial decisions through the lens of the financially wealthy half of the money matrix, you start understanding where your money comes from and where it goes. You begin to recognize the natural cycle of growth on growth when earned income is invested in capital that creates cash flow. This cash flow can be reinvested in more capital for more cash flow. It's like compound interest with a turbocharger. Ask yourself this question. In which half of the money matrix have you been living? Does your income go straight out the door in the form of consumption? Or do you always designate a substantial portion of your earned income for direct investment into capital? I can't overemphasize how important it is to take a moment to understand the money matrix. Your financial priorities can make the difference between achieving true financial wealth and falling prey to the allure of living in the world of shadow wealth. Think net worth. Every day, an undeclared game is being played out. It is a serious game of individual achievement with both winners and losers. Whether you realize it or not, you are a player in this game. It's the personal game of financial wealth building. And if you want to win and win big, you have to know how to keep score. The question is, do you know your score? One of the great lessons I carried away from my breakfasts with Michael was the knowledge that the wealthy are conscious players of the financial wealth building game. They play it strategically and keep score by carefully watching their net worth. Each year, Forbes magazine devotes an issue to ranking the wealthiest people in the world. By the way, can you guess what they use as a yardstick for financial success? Interestingly, it's not annual income. They believe the best and most definitive measure of financial wealth is net worth, the sum total of an individual's assets and liabilities. In personal terms, your financial wealth is your net worth which is what you own minus what you owe. I didn't always understand this. In fact, like most people, I probably placed too much importance on my earned income when I should have been tracking my assets, capital, and my unearned income, cash flow. I later learned that the trick to financial clarity is to look past your earned income to your unearned income, and then beyond that to the underlying source of that unearned income. While almost everyone who talks about investing emphasizes cash flow, 
people probably don't place as much importance as they should on the origin of that cash flow. Without a doubt, achieving positive cash flow from your investments is critical to long-term investment success. But let me ask you this. Do you know where your cash flows from? Cash flow comes from capital, which is the basis of your net worth. I would argue that the fundamental wealth building number you should focus on and track is your net worth. It's the golden goose. This insight changed the way I looked at my personal finances. And on Michael's advice, I started keeping score. Together, we took a standard bank loan application and used it to create a list of all the financially significant things I owned, from stocks, bonds, and real estate to furniture, car, and so on. Then we subtracted all my various debts and liabilities. The final number was my net worth. Each week, I'd update my net worth worksheet. And when Michael and I met again, we would ask one simple but profound question. What's the best way to make that number grow? Through this weekly process, I discovered that knowing your net worth, while an eye-opening process, is really only half the battle. The greatest clarity comes when you also track your net worth over time. When I did that, I started to notice which financial decisions had the greatest positive impact on my financial wealth. As a general rule, investing made my net worth go up, and consumption made it go down. Sometimes when I thought I was investing, I really wasn't. I discovered that not all assets are equal. Some appreciate while others depreciate. For example, when I purchased a car, even though it was an asset, it was a depreciating asset. So my net worth went down. In contrast, when I invested in real estate, an appreciating asset, although I incurred debt, my net worth went up. I started to take a closer look at all my assets to see whether they were true investments. What I discovered was that even my own home, which I hadn't originally treated like an investment, was in fact an appreciating asset. My home mortgage turned out to be a little like a forced investment plan in real estate. Each payment increased my equity and lowered my debts. Most people don't think of their homes as an investment when they buy one. It's only later, after a few years of appreciation and equity buildup, that they say, my house was the best investment I ever made. I would make the case that owning a home might be the most important accidental asset most individuals will ever require. The millionaire real estate investors we interviewed made thinking about net worth a habit. They also grasped the effect home ownership has on net worth and were compelled to ask the following questions. How much faster would my net worth grow if I owned more real estate? How fast would it grow if someone else paid down the mortgage? What if the rent they paid more than covered the property's expenses and generated positive cash flow? In answering those big questions about their wealth, they started down the path to becoming the committed real estate investors they are today. They began to live in a world of intentional investments, not just accidental assets. What became clear to them, and is clear to me, is that once you begin to think net worth, it is only natural to begin to think real estate. Think real estate. Your government wants you to think real estate. Actually, the government not only wants you to think real estate, it wants you to own it. In fact, it needs you to do that. This point was driven home for me during a taxicab ride in Florida. 
The driver was from Chile, and when he heard I was in real estate, he told me a remarkable story of how the Chilean government had launched a housing program in the 1970s to revitalize the economy. The idea was to make housing affordable to more middle-income and low-income buyers, which would allow them to build equity over time. The program was based on the well-documented effects of housing affordability and ownership on the American economy. Home ownership and the resulting expenses of maintaining a home, fixing it up and furnishing it, are widely considered the largest and most important category of spending in the United States. That's not all. Home ownership also helps launch small businesses by allowing would-be entrepreneurs to borrow against the equity in their homes. My cabbie was articulating the economics of property ownership in a way that very few people do. I enjoyed the conversation and hated to see it end. When I got home, I looked it up and discovered that the story didn't end there. As it turns out, the housing reforms in Chile were so effective that Ecuador implemented a similar program in the 1990s. In a white paper on the subject, the economist Hernando de Soto observed that the critical difference between successful capitalist societies and those that are not is their ability to create wealth with private property, especially land and housing. It's a fact. Historically and globally, free market societies foster and protect real estate ownership because it can underpin a society's ability to build financial wealth and prosperity. That's why millionaire real estate investors think real estate for building their personal financial wealth and prosperity. Our research and experience show that no other investment has had as consistent and powerful an effect on the average person's net worth as real estate ownership. In fact, as real estate historian Dana Lee Thomas observed, the oldest fortunes in America have come from land. Unlike Europe, where most of the valuable acreage has been held and passed down by nobility for centuries, American real estate has been open to virtually anybody with the daring and ingenuity to possess it. With that powerful insight in mind, let's take a moment to run through some of the many advantages of investing in real estate. These advantages lead millionaire real estate investors to refer to real estate as the most able investment. For starters, Real estate is remarkably accessible to investors. Not only is it easy to understand and easy to find, more significantly, it's easy to finance. In addition to a wide variety of conventional and government-supported mortgage loan programs, there are many sources of private and owner financing. In the end, there are real estate financing options for every type of property and almost every type of buyer, from low income to no income, poor credit to no credit little down to nothing down. You name it. There are typically no insurmountable financial barriers to entry. The biggest reason for this is that real estate provides significant insurable collateral for any mortgage. It doesn't matter who the lender is, institutional or individual. When loans are secured by real estate, lenders feel secure. This is what you see when you look at the big picture of investing. And that's a huge reason why real estate remains so accessible to all. The second thing that makes real estate an able investment is that it's appreciable. It increases in value over time. This is due to two primary factors. First, 
general inflation drives up the replacement cost of housing, that's construction materials and the cost of labor. Therefore, the value of all real estate is driven up. Second, there's the influence of supply and demand. As the population increases, so does the demand for housing. This makes sense because, as research shows, in the modern era, real estate has consistently increased in value at a rate of about 6.1% a year. This has outpaced inflation by an average of 33% a year. Trammell Crow, one of the most successful real estate investors ever, once famously declared, the way to wealth is debt. What he was bluntly describing is the third area that makes real estate an able investment. Real estate is leverageable. The 6.1% appreciation rate mentioned earlier may not seem like a lot, but that figure is actually a little deceiving. It doesn't take into account the fact that practically no one pays all cash for a home or real estate investment. In reality, almost everyone finances most, if not all, of the price through a mortgage. As a result, people get the benefit of the appreciation on the full value of the property, while having to invest only a relatively small proportion of the purchase price. For example, a person may have put down only $30,000 on a $150,000 house. If that leveraged property has appreciated 6.1% to $159,150, the $9,150 gain should be weighed against the $30,000 invested, not the $150,000 price. A gain of $9,150 on $30,000 translates to a 30.5% rate of return on the investment. Because real estate is leverageable, millionaire real estate investors know they can achieve rates of return not commonly seen with other investment vehicles. When we talked real estate with the noted economist Harry S. Dent, Jr., he said, The most important thing about homeownership is that it's leveraged. When you look at your net investment and the return on that, homes can certainly compete with the stock market. In 1936, Harry Helmsley, one of this country's largest landlords, bought his first property for $1,000 down and a $100,000 mortgage. He sold it 10 years later for $165,000. Leveraging an investment doesn't get much better than that. The concept of leverage doesn't work only when you purchase a property. Once you build up an equity position in an investment property, you can leverage that investment for cash in one of two ways. You can secure a secondary loan against the increased equity or refinance the original loan amount plus the increased equity. Remarkably, the leverage advantage can work two ways. You can buy a property for dimes on the dollar and you can convert any equity gains into cash without selling the asset. The next major bonus of real estate is the cash flow it can generate. Real estate is rentable. It continually amazes me that I can purchase a property, then turn around and rent it to a person who will pay down my debt in exchange for living there. In reality, that's what renters do. They pay your mortgage, which builds your equity. If you bought the property right, they provide you with the opportunity to get unearned income in the form of positive cash flow. When you take a look at the total return from real estate investing, you have the opportunity for an investment triple play, appreciation, debt pay down, and positive cash flow. The last two come from your ability to rent the property. 
Interestingly, history has shown that despite local periods of fluctuation, over the long haul, rents have increased. According to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, rents have been appreciating over the past 30 years at an annual rate of 5.3%. Millionaire real estate investors understand all this and know that although rents tend to be cyclical, they rise over time. One of the unique and attractive advantages of real estate is it's improvable. Because real estate is a tangible asset made of wood, brick, concrete, and glass, a millionaire real estate investor knows you can improve the value of any property with some tools and a little elbow grease. Whether the repairs are structural or cosmetic, whether you do it yourself or hire someone else, the principle is the same. It's called sweat equity. You can also increase the value of the property in a more subtle way by changing its zoning or use. Converting vacant lots into parking lots and converting apartments into condos are a couple of common examples of adding value through creativity. Actually, this is another form of sweat equity. It's just more mental than muscular. This is what millionaire real estate investors love about real estate. They can use their hands and use their minds. Their investing can even take on the aspects of a game in which with each property they attempt to discover its hidden value. When they find that hidden value, they buy the property, improve it, and reap the financial reward. In the end, real estate offers investors a unique opportunity to affect their investments directly. This is an area where personal time and energy can really pay off. If you ever needed proof that the government wants you to own real estate, look no further than the many tax benefits the government has given it. The three that stand out the most are that it's deductible, depreciable, and deferrable. Millionaire real estate investors are well aware of these tax advantages and take advantage of them. You could say that they see real estate in 3D. The first D, deductible, reflects the fact that tax law allows various deductions for the normal expenses incurred in owning real estate. Expenses such as property upkeep, maintenance, improvements, and even the interest paid on a mortgage. Millionaire real estate investors use these deductions to offset their investment income and, in some cases, their personal income. This reduces their overall taxes. The most important of these deductions comes from the second D, depreciable. What's interesting is that not only does tax law allow you to depreciate your investments, it requires it. Simply put, things are presumed to wear out and lose value over time. The government expects you to account for that wear and tear, whether it's actually happening or not, by claiming an annual decline in the value of the building, its contents, plus any improvements. Millionaire real estate investors love this tax break because it allows them to reduce their taxable income through depreciation, even when a property is increasing in value through appreciation. The third D is deferrable. Tax law allows you to use IRAs and 1031 exchanges to buy and sell investment real estate while deferring the tax hit to a more advantageous time. IRA funds can be invested in real estate, and as long as any profits from rental income or property sales remain in the IRA, those profits are tax-deferred. 
The 1031 exchanges give you a choice at the moment of sale. You can either realize the gain and pay taxes on it, or reinvest that gain in another property and defer the taxes. And when you choose to reinvest, the transaction is treated as if you simply exchanged equity in one property for equity in another. The government has established these tax-deferring vehicles as a way for investors to reinvest real estate profits without having to pay taxes until later. Millionaire real estate investors believe that taxes deferred until tomorrow are always better than taxes paid today. As a result, they make use of these programs to preserve their profits as they go, giving them more to reinvest and accelerating the growth of their real estate portfolios. U.S. Appeals Court Judge Learned Hand once observed, There are two systems of taxation in our country, one for the informed and one for the uninformed. I agree. When it comes to taxes, there are two kinds of people, consumers and investors. One group avoids planning for taxes. The other group plans for avoiding taxes. One sees doing their taxes as a painful chore that costs them money. The other views their tax work as a necessary task that saves them money. Consumers think of tax refunds as found money they didn't have. Investors see tax refunds as evidence of money they overpaid. When you connect working on your taxes to the money you save versus the money you pay, thinking about and working on your taxes ceases to be so painful. It's still work, but it doesn't have to be your work. Accountants will do it for you because they're the only ones who think tax work is fun. In the end, the three Ds, deductible, depreciable, and deferrable, are about reducing your taxable income. No investment does that better than real estate, which offers unprecedented tax advantages, both while you own it and when you sell it. Millionaire real estate investors also count on the fact that real estate is quite stable. It's slow to rise and slow to fall. It doesn't surprise you. And better yet, it doesn't shock you. Nicholas Retsines, director of Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, noted the following. From 1975 to 1998, only 14 of the country's largest metro areas experienced price declines of 5% or more over a three-year period. Unless you overpaid walking in, and if you're prepared to live through the cycle, you're probably not going to lose money over the long haul. In other words, the real estate market is predictable for anyone who's paying attention. You can see it coming, and you can see it going. There have been only two times since 1900 when the stability of real estate was called into question, the Great Depression of the 1930s and the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Both were ultimately the result of extraordinary government policy and tinkering. Statistically, economists rate the volatility of an investment through a measure called the standard deviation. In this case, it's the percentage an investment's value will go up or down on average in a given year. From 1973 to 2003, the standard deviation for real estate was 4%. In other words, real estate values have fluctuated up or down by only about 4% each year. On a graph, real estate values look like gently rolling hills. In contrast, the stock market had a standard deviation of 16.8%, which looks more like a jagged electrocardiogram printout. 
The facts speak for themselves. Real estate is more stable. But let's be clear. This is not a discussion about rates of return. It's about day-to-day -day risk. Figure 31 on the bonus CD illustrates the differences in various investment portfolio mixes and drives this point home. You can see that when real estate is included in the mix, the standard deviation, the volatility and the risk, is minimized. This happens because of the remarkable stability of real estate prices. While this doesn't mean you should avoid other investments, it does mean you should include real estate in your investment portfolio. And that's exactly what millionaire real estate investors do. The last thing that makes real estate an able investment is that it is livable. It is quite literally the only investment vehicle that can put a roof over your head. This point is included not for the sake of cuteness, but to make a point that many millionaire real estate investors made to us. The home you live in can also be an investment the second you start thinking of it as one. The trick is to start seeing your home for everything it can be. It's more than just shelter. It's a foundation piece of your financial wealth building program. That's the way I looked at it when I bought my first property. I was in my early 20s and needed a roommate to afford it. Later I moved out, moved a tenant in, bought a second home, and moved my roommate with me. This was a great formula for me, and one I could repeat. I was buying shelter and an investment. And because I understood the real estate game, I got both houses for no money down. Many of our millionaire real estate investors shared with us the fact that they also began their investment careers by moving into a home, fixing it up, then renting it out when they moved into a second home. They took care of a life necessity while launching an investment career. It was a strategy they could use anytime, and as often as they wanted. Here's the bottom line. This can happen only with real estate. Combine all these reasons and you will understand why we believe real estate is a most able investment. Note that this discussion is not intended to disparage other investment options. While I've created a lot of wealth through real estate, I've also made great money by investing in business ownership as well as traditional stocks and bonds. I am an investor. I use all these vehicles. But just like the millionaire real estate investors we interviewed, I appreciate the unique advantages of real estate. The challenge you may face is that these many advantages of real estate may be overlooked by traditional investment advisors. Because it's not written about or discussed in financial publications enough, investors may not realize that real estate is a credible option for them. If you've never considered real estate in the past, I hope you'll think about it now. Our millionaire real estate investors chose to think real estate, and that's how they became millionaires. Think value, opportunity, and deals. Almost anything worth doing has a process. What the millionaire real estate investors revealed to us was their thinking followed a process that in the end instructed their actions. The truth we discovered was that you have to know values in order to recognize opportunities. And you have to find opportunities before you can do deals. That makes sense, because you don't just go out and do deals. You can't really make a deal until you've found an opportunity. And you can't really know if it's an opportunity until you understand value. It's that simple. 
the millionaires follow a simple process, and that process works. Curiously, none of the investors we interviewed articulated these three important concepts as a detailed process. But as they described the way they went about their business and made their decisions, the process became apparent, and we began to see the simple wisdom and brilliance of it. We came to understand how it saved them time, reduced their risk, and kept them focused. That's why we need to emphasize it here. It is how they think, and it does make a difference in the results they achieve. Successful real estate investing begins with identifying value. How do investors identify value? Well, that's easy. They look at real estate. They look at a lot of real estate. They look very carefully at a lot of real estate. I wish I could tell you there was a shortcut, but there's not. And I caution you against trying to create one. When you're starting to learn the value of real estate in an area, you'll need to look at a lot of real estate. And as you carefully begin to get a sense of what people are asking and what people are willing to pay, you gain a sense of market value. What's worth what? This applies to both sales prices and rental rates. These are the two big variables in the value equation. The more you look at properties, the more your sense of value becomes accurate and internalized. This way, when you come upon an available property, you'll be able to determine quickly what price will make that property worth pursuing. This is where opportunity shows up. Every opportunity is not necessarily a deal. What turns an opportunity into a deal is that the property meets your criteria and the seller is willing to meet your terms. Millionaire real estate investor Dykes Bodiford put it very well when he said, deals aren't found, opportunities are found, deals are made. In the buy a million section of this book, we'll walk you through all the aspects of criteria and terms. But understand this, it is your growing awareness of values in the marketplace the clarity of your criteria, and the ability to obtain favorable terms that make this process so powerful. The underlying key to your thinking is that you know there is a process that works. Know value, find opportunity, and make deals. Think Action My father was a good investor. A lifelong educator, he had a modest lifestyle and used his savings to invest carefully in rural land and residential real estate. However, after a while, he became impatient for bigger returns on his investment of time and effort. And as a result, he made his first speculative investment. It was also his last. He was invited to participate in an opportunity that involved converting an abandoned drive-in movie theater into a parking lot. The outcome hinged on the city adopting the site for its park-and-ride program, but soon after the purchase, the deal went sour. The city opted for an alternative site, and the property continued to yield negative cash flow with no end in sight. Because my dad didn't have deep pockets, he couldn't hold on. In the end, his partners released him from his obligations, but he lost his entire investment. To his credit, he told me the whole story and didn't sugarcoat it. His early real estate investments paid my and my sister's way through private college, but this one bad deal knocked him out of the real estate investment game for life. It's a hard lesson all would-be investors should learn. Impatience, or worse, confusion, can lead you down a path from which you may not be able to recover. When it comes to making money, I think most people don't realize they are too impatient and confused. What they're confused about 
is what it really means to be an investor. As a result, they may never take action. Or if they do, they take the kind of confused action that can lead to financial disaster. Millionaire real estate investors are not confused. They understand that investing requires action. More important, they also understand that successful investing requires the right action. That's what we mean when we say that millionaire real estate investors think action. In the course of our research, we talked to hundreds of would-be investors. Some were moving toward their goals, others were still learning the game. It became clear that those who had become the most successful had, at some point, made a crucial decision. They decided to take action. They said to themselves, I know enough to know I'm heading in the right direction, I need to get started and then keep learning as I go. These investors understood that investing in real estate is, without a doubt, a game of acquired knowledge, and more important, a game of knowledge acquired over time. They also knew that no reading list and no seminar schedule could equip them for the task. Some things are learned or refined through doing. If you take a step back and look at this from a distance, you'll see that there are four basic ways people approach investing. Most are observers. Some are speculators, others are collectors, and a few are investors. Observers love the idea of investing, but out of fear, buy nothing. Speculators love the action, and in their impatience may buy anything. Collectors love ownership, and for self-gratification, buy something. Investors love opportunity, and in their wisdom, buy the right thing. Observers can have all the mental qualities of a great investor, but without action, they end up witnessing success instead of experiencing it. They are the bystanders on the sidewalk, the spectators in the stands, and the backseat drivers. I've known some incredibly knowledgeable observers. Having read dozens of books on investing and having attended numerous seminars, they get investing. But what they don't get is that all the time, money, and energy they've invested in their learning will never earn them a financial return if they don't make investments. For some reason, they haven't found the motivation to go out, take action, and become an investor. This is the way it seems to go with observers. Because they study it all the time, they think they're investing. But they're not. Speculators aren't afraid to take action. In fact, they love action to a fault. These are the high rollers, thrill seekers, lottery lovers, and the gamblers. They confuse risk taking with investing, and their risk tolerance may border on risk numbness as they pursue their dream of a big, fast payday. The trouble is that speculation is, by definition, a matter of taking above average risk in the hope of achieving above average returns. It's buying something on the basis of its potential selling price rather than its actual value. Look it up. Speculators bet on the come. A classic example of speculators in action was the 1636 Amsterdam tulip bulb craze. To make a long story short, imported tulip bulbs at that time were the exclusive province of Holland's wealthiest collectors. Sometime around 1635, speculators got involved and started buying the bulbs not for their gardens but for resale. That small amount of pressure on a market already short on supply, soon forced legitimate tulip bulb vendors to bid against one another and drive up prices. Before long, 
a public market was created, and prices of different bulb varieties were tracked publicly in taverns and meeting places. Soon more speculators began to take advantage of the pinched market, further driving up prices. Then the market shifted from trading real bulbs, which can be pulled only in season, to trading promissory notes for bulbs that would be dug up at a later date. This is important because notes began to be bought on margin, 10% down, 90% on delivery. Then the notes were traded multiple times from origination to extraction. One could call this the credit card effect, since the notes buffered prospective buyers from having to fork over actual cash. This opened up the tulip bulb market to everyone, and for a period of about two months in late 1636, the market exploded as the Dutch middle class dived into the fray looking to make fast fortunes. Ordinary people mortgaged farms and homes to buy single bulbs worth as much as a year. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We'll be really thankful if you support us by clicking the link in the description so that we continue to create amazing content for you.